The Quarantine Conversation mini-podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all our scientists wear lab coats. Today we're talking to Marianne Wong, a paleontologist. Now in this series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. Would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher? What kind of stage would you say your career is at as a paleontologist? At this point, I have a special interest in paleontology. I still have a lot to learn. <laughs> well, you're very, very knowledgeable from what I've seen. Um, now, what is a paleontologist? How do you define that yourself? Well, I would say that a paleontologist is someone who studies ancient life. Ah, excellent. And uh, why or how did you get into this kooky field? Well, it was kind of funny, really, because my start in paleontology was when I participated in a public dig program at Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta. I have no, had no science background and no clue about deep time or anything like that, but I just enjoyed the experience so much and it sparked a curiosity in me that I just ran, I've run with ever since. Excellent. How did you get involved with that deep dig program at Dancer Provincial Park? Well, part of um, my field trips, uh, my husband and I were exploring, well, have been exploring Canada. And when we got to Alberta, of course, dinosaurs and fossils are a really big deal. And so that was one place that we really did not want to overlook. So it was just happened to come up in our um, personal line of studies. And I'm really glad it did. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so that's great to know if any of our, our listeners want to um, take part in that as well, that that's an option. Have you ever found anything really cool? Yes. <laughs> um, only last summer, I was out doing field work, and I actually found a Tyrannosaur maxilla, or upper jaw. Oh, wow. <laughs> is, that, is that rare? I mean, we always hear about Tyrannosauruses um, as kind of like the poster child for, for all dinosaurs, but are they actually easy to find, or is that pretty special? Um, I think it's somewhat special. There are a lot of dinosaurs that are quite common. And um, I'd say tyrannosaurs, there's different kinds of tyrannosaurs, but they're not the most common dinosaur out there. So it's it's somewhat special, yes. That's cooler than anything I've found so far. So you're ahead of me on, the, on that score. <laughs> um, are you do doing any research right now? Well... Currently what I'm doing is I'm cataloging the Pacific Museum of Earth fossil collection. Another thing that I'm working on is that I'm preparing, I have some specimens that I am preparing as well. So um, not new research, but trying to get things organized and uh, to a state where research can be done on them. That was a bit of a leading question on my part. <laughs> um, of course, we really appreciate all the work that you do at the museum. Um, and without you, our fossil collection would be uh, far less accessible. So thank you for all of that. Um, 
Now, do you have any crazy field stories? Uh, whenever I talk to our Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric scientists, uh, they always tell me about their crazy stories from the field. Um, has anything ever happened to you strange out when you're in a dig? Um, yeah, I have a couple of stories. First, maybe I'll talk about, I had the chance to do so, to be on a public dig program um, at Morden, Manitoba. And in Morden, they have Bruce, who is the largest publicly displayed mosasaur. Now, he's an ancient marine reptile, and he is huge. If you have the chance to get to Morden, Manitoba, go say hi to Bruce. <laughs> he basically, there's two mosasaurs in the room. They have their own room as a display. That's how big he is. And anyway, so I was on a public dig program there at the Canadian Fossil Discovery Centre and uh, we got driven out to the secret location. <laughs> it was basically private land. It was a farm field and part of the crop had been cleared away and we were digging and you know, <clears throat> wouldn't you know it, I think we stumbled upon some pieces of another mosasaur. Oh wow. Yeah, so that was really exciting. I don't believe they've finished clearing that whole area and gotten everything together. So that, that was pretty motivating, though. It was neat. Um, that was, um, I think that was 2017, something okay. like that. Yeah. Um, and then my other story is, uh, we'll go back to this maxilla, this Tyrannosaur maxilla. Yeah. Um, okay, so last summer, and th this is, is is true to form. I, I was digging with. I was part of the Royal Tyrol Museum uh, crew that went out, and we were we were like on the last session of the summer of last summer. And in the morning, it was decided that we would go out and do a little bit of fossil prospecting. And the rest of the crew were actually from, like worked at the museum and they're from Drumheller. I was the only one that's from out of town. And so we had to be gone um, from the field by, you know, around noon because they had to drive back to Drumheller. Okay. So we're in Dinosaur Provincial Park. And uh, we're walking around and I was teamed up with somebody. And uh, so we had decided, oh, we're going to go for a nice little hike and maybe see what we can find. So we hadn't gotten further than oh, like 30 yards or so from the site where we were, we had uh, taken off. And I looked down and there's this thing sticking out by this bush. And so I said to my more experienced prospecting partner, do you think this is something? And he said, well, I don't know. Let's start. Let's take a look. So we start digging. And as we're clearing the brush and the debris away, he started to get more excited. Now, he's quite experienced in prospecting. So I took that as a good sign. <laughs> so anyway, before we knew it, um, we're starting to uncover a bigger and bigger and bigger fossil. And when you know it, it starts raining. And when you're out in the field at Dinosaur Provincial Park, 
if it starts raining, that particular environment, it gets very, very, very slippery. So they don't mm -hmm. like to be out in the field when it's wet. Um, so we're racing against time to get to uncover this fossil in the ground and see what we actually have. Um, so we got enough of it uncovered. We called over the supervisor and then another guy that was more experienced and they figured, oh, maybe a maybe an upper jaw. And then the clincher was when I found a tooth. So that kind of confirmed it. So what we did was we uncovered enough to sort of see what we had um, and then to protect it. So we had to all take off. So I actually left behind my plastic rain poncho as a cover <laughs> for the fossil. <laughs> and I had had to rely on my prospecting partner to come back a couple of weeks later and sort of finish the job. He uncovered the rest of it, uh, put a field jacket on it because it was way too wet. We had no time to put, you know, the plaster field jacket that would protect the fossil so we could dig it out more, flip it over and take it back to the museum. So um, my prospecting buddy did that took it back to the Royal Tiro Museum. And then I thought, well, we'll see. I mean, getting it prepared is yet another wait, right? And no guarantees that's going to be done. But they actually went ahead and worked on that a few months later. And I was so happy when they sent me pictures of the whole thing. And yeah, so that was kind of an exciting discovery for me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, what goes into preparation when uh, preparing a fossil? Okay, so you have your fossil that has your plaster jacket on it, right? It's been mm -hmm. transported to the museum and then into the into the fossil lab. And that jacket's just kind of like a one of those old time casts, right? Kind Looking of, yeah. It's like. It, it's um, if it's a more heavy duty jacket, there's burlap with like plaster of Paris, like soaked in plaster of Paris. And then that burlap is put on the outside mm -hmm. to reinforce. Now, for the really large specimens, there could be wood frames also included in that because oh, wow. you can imagine solid stone get, gets very, very heavy. And if you're just putting plaster and burlap that's not sufficient to support that specimen right. okay but mine was i think mine was small enough like there's the jaw that they could put burlap with the plaster of pear so it's hauled into the prep lab and then the jacket is is peeled away and they start working with tools to remove the dirt from around the fossil and the fossil, you know, it depends on what shape it's in. A lot of times, and you have quite a, diff a bunch of different glues and things like that for different purposes, but a lot of glue is involved to glue the fossil together, especially while you're working on it, just to keep pieces together um, right. while you can clear away stuff that is not part of your specimen. And then it really depends on what the... the why you're preparing that specimen. Some specimens are prepared 
so that more research can be done on them. So they might, it might be a bone that's going to be sawed through with a saw. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. And some specimens are prepared so they can be displayed. So mine in the end um, was put into yet another, like a display jacket and cradled in that. And that specimen was then cataloged as to where it was, where in the park it was discovered and when, because the Tyrrell, like um, one of the lead, the leader of the fieldwork team, he was doing a project on tyrannosaurs and um, which ones have been located within the park. So it's just lucky for me that that became then one of his data points. Cool. Yeah. Really contributing to, uh, to research. <laughs> <laughs> How big is a, uh, a tyrannosaur's jawbone? Um, <laughs> I guess this one... I'm not sure how old the, the creature was. And like I say, there's there's different pteranosaurs within, like Tyrannosaurus rex is, of course, the biggest one, but there are other kinds of pteranosaurs. So maybe the jawbone was like this big, something like that. <laughs> I guess, many how many inches was that? Like, uh, where's my, maybe like, it's maybe like 18 inches or so. 18 inches, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, it's fairly large, but not as large as the ones, the sort of prime specimens you'd see on display at the Tyrrell, for example, like Black Beauty, if people have been there. You know, that's that's a bit bigger than what I found. But <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so uh, why, why do you think, consider paleontology to be important? Or what are the, the real-world applications of, of your research? Okay, so for the job that I'm doing, mm -hmm. um, what we have now, well, the things that are not catalogued are basically just a bunch of fossils that are sitting in trays. Mm -hmm. There's, they're not really useful at this point. So what I'm doing is taking this assemblage of rocks and making them into an actual collection. So once these things are identified and cataloged, cleaned, and organized, then they're actually useful. They can be put on display to the public and interpreted, right? Yeah. Uh, for the public, they could be part of public programming, right, educational programming, mm -hmm. and they can also be used um, by researchers um, who are working on special research into using fossils, and then these can form um, the evidence for when papers are published. So that's the application, you know, the real-world application that I'm seeing with my work. Absolutely. And we certainly appreciate it. The uh, collections become so much more useful uh, because of all your hard work. And yeah, <laughs> we really, really do appreciate it. Uh, what would you say is the most exciting part of your work or your favorite part uh, of your work? Well, one of my the favorite things is that there's always surprises. So Whenever, you know, I take out a tray of fossils mm -hmm. to organize them and look at them, 
Some come with documentation, some don't. Some of those documents can be very old. Like, it's really, really interesting. It, you know, some, you see, a, when you read a letter from, like, 1938, for example, and it's handwritten, you know, it's pretty cool, right? Um, sometimes you see, I see famous names on some of these papers, right? Like the papers with filed with the fossils. So it's neat. And each fossil is its own, you know, I've, I've always reminded at one time was a living creature. It's every fossil is different. And that's kind of exciting because you don't really know what you're going to get with each tray until you look closely at them. So that's the thing that I really enjoy. And, and by, you know, cataloging them and, and giving them a description, it's give, bringing some of that life back to them and um, recognizing each individual specimen. So really, you're an ar archaeologist and a paleontologist at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what would you like to see happening in the field as it goes forward? Or are there, are there any issues with paleontology that you'd like to see resolved in the future? Well, with um, the work that I'm doing, um, a big part of the collection that we have it's pretty immense and there are actually a lot of plant fossils in that collection. So for me personally, what I would like to see is uh, I'd love to be more adept at um, the class identifying and classifying these plant fossils. I think there's so much that can be learned from them. Mm -hmm. So that's one area that I would really love to work on. And I, in fact, I have started working on it. And um, one of my volunteers has also started working on that as well, sort of beefing up our knowledge in that area. Good. Good. Uh, now, of course, the whole world has been disrupted by the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, has that affected you at all? It has, sadly. <laughs> Um, I'm not, I'm not allowed to work in the lab right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Luckily, I do have access to the catalog from home. So I've done a little bit of work on the catalog in terms of organizing data and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the time, I'm trying to make good use of, of my time. And so I've been working on improving my knowledge in paleontology um, and knowledge of identifying fossils, um, you know, trying to, and also trying to stay on top of the new papers that are coming out. There's always some new papers and research that is, is going on in the field. So it actually takes a bit of time to um, stay on top of the current news. It's amazing the new discoveries that are going on and uh, collaborations uh, between paleontologists worldwide, They're, we're putting together a lot of facts and data and really filling in that picture of ancient life. Um, so it's a really interesting time to be involved in paleontology. And so that's some of the things that I've been able to spend my time on that I would have otherwise been in the lab. Oh, good. 
Good. I'm glad you're able to still be productive and and keep learning. Um, yeah, your time in the lab is always appreciated. Uh, you've given so much of it and made such a big difference to the collection. I, I can certainly say that. Um, are there any discoveries or recent discoveries that you're particularly excited about? Um, I can't think of anything offhand. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. It's just the whole uh, picture, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's filling in gaps in the in the knowledge, mm -hmm. right? For different creatures, like in, um, yeah, I I can't think. Of, sorry, I can't think of anything specific okay. right now. Okay. The last one that I remember uh, reading about was the uh, the little dinosaur head that they found in the amber. Um, yeah, that's pretty so. cool. Yeah, <laughs> I I find some things are that are coming out now that are very, very interesting. Um, when you talk about paleontology and how some early fossils were collected, and then it's interesting now about um, poaching, right? Yes. Fossils and repatriation of fossils, mm -hmm. right? And this whole thing also around ethics, where you talk about fossils being found in amber. and. Um, the scary part is when you find out about how some of those fossils were actually um, retrieved. Oh, yeah. It's, it's scary, right? The human rights issues around these things and the greed, mm -hmm. right, of people um, who know that something preserved in amber can fetch a lot of money. And the lengths that they're willing to go through to get get to these um, fossils uh, can be quite disturbing. Let's just say that a uh, tiny dinosaur head that they found in amber um, is really scientifically exciting. But like you said, it comes from an area of the world which is um, undergoing a lot of human rights abuses right now, and a lot of it seems to be fueled by this amber trade. So it is a double-edged sword, very much so. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that's certainly an issue that's uh, facing the paleontological uh, community, which we wouldn't have expected um, even just a few years ago, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, Marianne, this has been a great conversation. Um, before I let you go, is there anything you want to say? Well, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat about paleontology with you. And I'm, I'm excited for what the future is going to bring to our fossil collection at Pacific Museum of Earth. And I hope that we get lots of people coming in and looking at our collection and also researchers coming and um, using the collection to further um, discoveries in paleontology who knows, we may have the missing piece of information that someone's been looking for. And uh, thank you for letting me uh, talk about what I do. I love that attitude. And, and thank you for being our very first uh, quarantine conversationalist. Um, <laughs> as always, your efforts are always uh, appreciated. And um, we just love the work that you do and the great attitude that you bring every time you, you step into the lab. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Okay, stay safe and have a great day.